The politics of rockets and our giant icy planets being left out in the cold. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The House is moving through a new authorization bill. While these pieces of legislation are usually unremarkable, this one is getting a lot of attention. That's because this bill would significantly alter NASA's current plans to head to the moon in 2024 and establish a permanent presence there, instead focusing on human missions to Mars in the 2030s. To unpack the politics of the plan, we'll speak with Casey Dreyer. He's the chief advocate and senior space policy advisor at the Planetary Society. Then a listener asks, where's the love for Neptune and Uranus? There have been no science missions to the ice giant since the Voyager flybys in the 1980s, so what gives? We'll ask our panel of experts on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know, about the prospects of an ice giant mission and the likelihood it will happen this decade. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. NASA astronaut Christina Cook is set to return to Earth this week after a record-setting stay on the International Space Station. When she lands in Kazakhstan Thursday, Cook will have spent 328 days in space. That's more time in space on a single mission by any woman, and she is second to Mark Kelly for the longest time in space for a U.S. astronaut. Cook also completed the first all-female spacewalk last year with fellow NASA astronaut Jessica Meir. NASA will study the effects of long-duration spaceflight on Cook, helping to better understand the risks that await astronauts for missions to the moon or Mars. Cook is departing the station with two others, a European astronaut and a Russian cosmonaut. They'll make the trip back to Earth in a Russian Soyuz capsule. One NASA astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts will remain at the station. And a new crew of three is set to launch to the station in April, including NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org space. And give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at Space Brendan. House Bill 5666. The proposed legislation lays the groundwork for what it thinks NASA should focus on in 2020, and it goes against the White House initiative to land humans on the lunar surface by 2024 and establish a permanent presence at the moon. Instead, it puts the focus on Mars. The bill has drawn criticism from many stakeholders in the space community, including NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. So what does it mean for the future of NASA? And will the agency take a hard turn towards Mars in response to this bill? To make sense of the political side of space exploration, we're joined by Casey Dreyer. He's the chief advocate and senior space policy advisor at the Planetary Society. Dreyer kicks off the conversation explaining what exactly an authorization bill is and what it does. Authorization bills are a way for Congress to set policy at NASA, to give the direction, to kind of approve programs conceptually. It's different than what we normally talk about, which is appropriations or funding NASA, which has to happen every year for NASA to stay open. Authorization bills don't have to happen for NASA to continue operating. And as a consequence, they tend to be every couple of years at this point and tend to endorse what the current administration is doing or, you know, with the occasional and very notable exceptions, insert congressional direction into NASA 
to set long-term goals for the space agency. So they can occasionally be very important, and often they're not that important. So right now we're talking about a, a, a new bill that could be very important if it passes as is. That's right, because there's the House version and the Senate version. They have to come together and then become the NASA Authorization Act, right? Is that, is that the way that this process works, if I remember from civics class? <laughs> yes, yep. It's your standard uh, how a bill becomes law. But as you mentioned, a lot of these are very unremarkable. Um, this one has a lot of people talking from, from the House side of things, right? What makes it so remarkable um, that we're talking about it? Well, it does a couple of things, but fundamentally what it does is it reorients, or it would reorient the focus of NASA's human spaceflight plan away from the baseline that we're at now, which is Project Artemis heading towards the moon using a mix of commercial and classic industrial partners to establish this long-term, they call it sustainable presence at the moon before going to Mars. The House bill would very much limit the scope of any activities at the moon and really turn the moon into a stepping stone as opposed to what you know the other version would be a more of a cornerstone, a foundation. This turns it into a stopping point where you test things at the moon, but everything you're doing would feed into a Mars goal with a relatively uh, fast timeline to getting humans to at least orbit Mars by 2033. It would set up, it would completely restructure some of the internal programs within NASA. It would create a new uh, moon-to-Mars directorate. And most controversially, it would pretty much dictate that any lunar lander tests to happen at the moon would have to utilize the big space launch system rocket that's under development by Boeing and have to be developed in a classic kind of cost-plus contracting method, basically cutting out a lot of commercial partnerships from being used to land people on the moon. And that's where a lot of the discussion is right now. Mm -hmm. When you look at the bill, it does kind of take away some of those avenues for commercial partnerships. As you mentioned, it's it's more of a cost-plus or or more focused on cost-plus. But it also moves the gateway, right? It, It says that you don't need the lunar gateway to go to the moon, which was kind of a way to get commercial partners involved in this whole uh, artist thing, right? Yeah, the gateway has a somewhat complex role in the current plan now. I mean, fundamentally, the gateway, let's, you know, just it, it's an orbiting mini space station, let's say, that's, that's occasionally crewed. It doesn't always have to be permanently crewed the way the ISS is. And that will be orbiting the moon now, and it would actually serve as a docking point before any ground landing attempts to the surface. At least that's how it was originally conceived. And the reason is, is that the Orion crew capsule and its service module was, is underpowered. It, it makes it very difficult to get Orion directly to the orbits you need to land on the moon. So the gateway basically literally does serve as a gateway way to transfer from one spacecraft to another to get down to the surface more easily because of basically hardware decisions made years ago. Now, NASA has already relaxed some of the requirements for docking with the Gateway for commercial lander proposals uh, in its current commercial competition for the 2024 landing deadline, right? That accelerated process that Vice President Pence announced last year. The idea being maybe you could do a simpler configuration, get boots on the ground, and then work on establishing your long-term presence. But this bill would basically say that the Gateway is actually, they rename it first Gateway to Mars, 
and it would completely cut out the the point of that uh, you know lunar access point. It would just say you have to use this very large rocket with an upgraded upper stage, and that's the only way you can send things to Mars. And you don't worry about docking with the gateway. The gateway is only for practicing long-term life support tests, deep space operations, and forming international partnerships around the vicinity of the moon. So it, it fundamentally reconfigures the point of the gateway. What do you think the intent of this bill is? What, what can we infer that these you know, House committee members are saying about the current administration's plans for uh, human exploration and where they think NASA's plans should actually be? Yeah, well, I mean, we can we put aside for a second, I think, the, you know, the, the obvious kind of industry giveaways that are inherent in the, in the SLS and the lunar lander cost plus stuff. Let's just put those aside as, as, as lobbying effects. The big picture of this bill, if you want to give it the most generous interpretation, is that the, the House especially, and let's note here that we're talking about a bill that has it's bipartisan sponsorship. It, it's sponsored by the top Democrats and the science and space committees in the House and the top Republicans in the, in the same committees. So this is a bipartisan legislation. And conceptually or philosophically what this does is that it, it doesn't accept the idea that we need to have a long-term sustained presence at the moon before we go to Mars. It wants to put Mars back into the center kind of driving force behind decisions happening in the near term in human spaceflight. So it doesn't want to spend resources on the moon that we don't have to. It only uses the moon if it feeds directly into sending humans to Mars. And so in that sense, it's it's a very... You know, if this had come out a few years ago, this would be very exciting, right? Before we had the current Artemis momentum. And that, you know, it's it's really putting down, it's, it says you have to utilize the International Space Station, prioritize the research there for getting humans to Mars. NASA has to put forward a long-term budget and plan with milestones to send humans to Mars. It has to immediately begin work on a Mars transfer vehicle. It, you know, all these things that you would tick off the list of an actual good policies for sending people to Mars it would do. But at the same time, it kind of avoids some of the trickier aspects of this, notably the, fund, the funding levels. But, you know, I'd, I'd say conceptually, this is, I wrote about this on, on a blog post for the Planetary Society. Do you consider the moon a stepping stone, right? A, a temporary spot that you go to on the way to somewhere else, in this case being Mars? Or do you consider the moon a foundation stone? Do you consider that you have to establish a permanent presence there to then enable something happening at Mars. And that's the philosophical difference where the administration now considers the moon a foundational aspect of future exploration, where this House bill really considers the moon as a temporary stopping point. It's a great policy analysis. I'll I'll put a link to it on on our website. Um, But just to go back to something you said, Casey, um, you know, something like this being released a few years ago, this would be, you know, incredible. This is the awesome stepping stone, um, you know, a great way to get humans to Mars. Um, what happens now that it's released now? Um, <laughs> you know, with with that 2024 deadline looming down on NASA, um, what does it mean to come out now? Well, it it's <laughs> I'm sure NASA is very irritated by this at the moment. I mean, so I, there's a real and I discussed this too. This idea of churn in the program is now really the time to go back to square one and start again. And I, I believe, and you know, I think we've seen that Artemis, as it's being conceived of and pursued, it's actually a pretty good program. It, it's, it's doing some smart things, and it's trying new things to get 
you know, human presence beyond low Earth orbit. And I would say at the very most basic thing, I don't care if it's the moon or Mars, I just want to see humans get out of low Earth orbit for the first time in my lifetime and, you know, in, in 50 years. And so do you make that happen any faster by resetting everything at NASA and then pointing to the moon with a bunch of kind of old school contracting methods? Probably not. And so there's going to be a debate. But what this does say, I think, in a bigger picture is even though the White House is, is very strongly pushing Artemis and this new pathway of doing business, you know, trying to get humans to the moon and then onto Mars, they have not formed the political consensus behind this, particularly in people in Congress. And they may be able to push that program forward while they're in power, but absent a very strong executive push for the moon, I don't see any evidence that Congress is going to be, continue such an aggressive program absent that executive pressure. And so there's a lot of work yet to be done on the White House's side and, frankly, for space advocates who really support this, uh, I'd say, moon first or, or uh, kind of ongoing lunar presence goal to really create this consensus among Congress. And so we're really going to be at this point where there's going to be an ongoing debate between, I'd say, not just the, the Congress and the White House, but really between different branches within Congress, the Senate and the House, the Senate being much more generous or accepting of the current plan than this House version has shown to be. Casey, a, a lot of folks pointed to Jim Bridenstine, the administrator of NASA, as someone who came from, from Congress. And, and there was this kind of thought that he might be able to navigate these, these political challenges a little better than previous administrations. Is he navigating this, or is he kind of thrown into a, a, a system that's, that does not have that political consensus, and he's kind of forced to deal with the fallout of this? I'd say both can be true. I, I, I think any NASA administrator has to be pretty uh, deft <laughs> in terms of dealing with Congress because there's a, the fundamental issue, right, is that we live in a democracy. We don't have to spend – and in this democracy, we don't have NASA written into our constitution. We don't have to spend money on the space program. And so by necessity, you have to build coalitions of self-interest at some level – to direct funds, you know, for these big endeavors. And it's, of course, there's always going to be disagreement and division and, and self-interest and, you know, where do I want jobs to be and so forth because we're talking about public funds with public oversight with people who are ultimately responsible to their constituents. So the fact that we're having this conversation isn't a surprise, you know, a big picture. And I think what we're starting to see uh, Administrator Bridenstein do is it, it's interesting to see his response to this already, which we're just starting to see today as we speak. He's taking a very conciliatory and open and, you know, uh, I'd say very respectful response. He, he's disagreeing, but he's leaving a lot of doors open. And I think he understands the the, the sense of self of being a member of Congress, right? That you, you don't have to push back hard right away. You work with them to see what do you really want here and can we find a way to compromise together. They're very, very easily, I think, could be a way to say, can we preserve the existing momentum that we've de uh, developed for Artemis and then still kind of tweak the future where it goes into more of a direct pathway to Mars as opposed to a more kind of conceptual pathway to Mars. And that may be the real issue here. And so I think there's pathways forward. I'd say we'll, we'll see uh, Mr. Bridenstine's approach, but he's taking a very interesting path already. Mm -hmm. And Casey Dreyer, someone who um, kind of lives in this sphere and works in this area, 
I mean, do you see that that kind of negotiating conciliatory uh, kind of viewpoint of this uh, coming to the table when it comes to markup? Will will these will the Senate and House be able to come to this consensus that not only will be able to satisfy both sides, but also not be vetoed by the president whose vision is moon 2024? <laughs> well, I think this year is kind of interesting. And, and well, well, here's one thing, important thing to remember. By doing nothing, the program would still continue in a sense. But it, it, the Senate kind of holds a lot of power right now. The House could pass this bill, but the Senate needs to pass or decide to take up that what the House has done and reconcile the two bills together before even voting on it to send it to the president. So in a sense, by doing literally nothing, nothing changes at NASA, right? They don't need this bill to pass to continue operating. Right. It's a nice thing to have. And so that actually makes it quite difficult or in a sense, you know, we don't have to worry too much for those of us who are really big fans of Artemis because the the easiest pathway in Congress is to not do something, right? So Democracy. And then of course, <laughs> there's a lot of checks, right, built into that, a lot of stopping points. But the and also, of course, the, the president could just veto it outright. And again, it's not like funding legislation where if they vetoed funding legislation, NASA would shut down, is what we saw last year. Mm-hmm. This way, by vetoing legislation, the program would continue unabated. And so I think what you will see is, if anything else, this will be seen as a statement of where the House is coming from. And again, this is why I'm saying we can draw the lesson from this, is that there is lacking a coalition right now for an accelerated lunar return program. And that should be setting off alarm bells within the policymakers in the White House and anyone, again, who really is a strong believer of the moon as a long-term sustainable place for NASA's human spaceflight efforts. As you mentioned, congressional inaction is good for Artemis, um, and this is not a funding bill, as as you've reminded us. Um, are we making a big deal out of nothing? Am I being chicken little and saying the sky is falling here by having you on the program to talk about this? Or, I mean, is this still something that, that, that we need to be looking at, at, at things in the future, like these appropriations bills when it comes to NASA, and that will show us kind of the, the true ideology of what, uh, what Congress wants NASA to do? Well, I, I think this is significant. And whenever you see legislation, even if it's in draft legislation, even if it's unlikely to pass as is, it's a statement of intent by the people who put it together. And again, the whole point, I think the most important lesson we can draw is that we are lacking a strong political consensus behind an accelerated return to the moon program and what it's supposed to do. Right. I mean, and so that tells us something important right there. Combining this with what we've seen from the appropriation side, that where they kind of had to pull some teeth just to get any money to begin lunar lander uh, development this year, you can see that it's going to be an uphill battle going forward. So it, it's really setting out the kind of the ideological starting points of what has to change, or at least being aware of what NASA's up against for succeeding in this program. Politically, they're facing an uphill battle on finding this consensus for human spaceflight, which you know, welcome to the space policy of human spaceflight has been that way since the end of the Apollo program. We've been speaking with Casey Dreyer. He's the chief advocate and senior space policy advisor at the Planetary Society. Casey, thank you so much for speaking with us. Always fun to be here. I'll put a link to Casey's policy analysis on our website. Visit WMFE.org slash are we there yet? Still to come, the case for exploring the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Where's the love for Neptune and Uranus? That was a message from one of our listeners left on Twitter. 
There have been no science missions to the ice giant since the Voyager flybys of the 1980s, so what gives? We take that question to our panel of science experts on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know. This week, we're joined by Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell, scientists at the University of Central Florida. And also this week, we're joined by Stephanie Jarmack. She's a graduate student studying these planets. She begins the conversation recalling all the missions to Uranus and Neptune. Right. So that's easy because there's only been one okay. mission. <laughs> okay, that is easy, yeah. Um, and it wasn't a dedicated mission, actually, to either Uranus or Neptune. Um, it was back in the late 80s, a Voyager 2 mission um, that happens to be flying by Uranus and Neptune um, at the end of its journey. I don't know about happened to be flying okay, by. Okay, it was, it was selected, <laughs> but through a lot of sweat and tears to uh, fly by Uranus and Neptune. Um, but yeah, we haven't had a up-close spacecraft mission view either of these planets since the late 80s. Um, even our ground-based telescopes now can provide us with better images of these planets. Wow. So yeah, when you, when you hear flyby, that, that, that's kind of a quick mission, right? So they, they, Voyager wasn't there for very long, right? No, not at all. Um, so you don't get any sort of the long-duration observations of the seasonal changes and things like that um, that we have access to from the ground a little bit. Um, and you don't get um, any of the sort of like rotational dynamics and things that are very interesting to study for these planets, too. Mm-hmm. Make the case. Um, <laughs> what, why do we, need, do we need to send a spacecraft there? What, what's still to learn at, at Uranus and Neptune? Right. So uh, Uranus and Neptune, they both represent um, their own sort of distinct class of planets. So we have the terrestrial planets that we all know and love, the rocky planets that are mostly um, silicates and rocks by mass, and then the uh, gas giants, uh, Saturn and Jupiter, which have had their own dedicated, many uh, dedicated mm-hmm. uh, spacecraft for Jupiter, um, and the Cassini mission, which gave us um, amazing information awesome. about Saturn. <laughs> right. Um, and so those those planets are composed mostly of hydrogen and helium. Um, but Uranus and Neptune are unique in that most of their mass is actually liquid, and they're these so-called ice giants, which are sort of this completely different class of planet, um, which... They are composed of these methane and water ices. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are observing the extrasolar planets. These Neptune-sized planets are actually fairly common in our galaxy. And so it's really important to be able to um, study our mm-hmm. own sort of exoplanets in right. our backyard. So if we have them outside of our solar system and, and studying them through exoplanets, it would probably help if we look at the ones that are even closer exactly. that, that we can study. So, exactly. So why hasn't there been... A mission to Uranus or Neptune since the 1980s. So far away. They're so far. Uh, it's not that far, right? Well, it's Uranus pretty far. is 20 times farther from the sun than the Earth is. It's twice as far away than Saturn. So it takes a long time to get there. That means you have to it's, – since it's so far from the sun, you've got to use radioactive power sources. So there's just some practical technological issues that you have to tackle uh, going there. Um, but another – one of the interesting things about these planets is they're sort of in this – as Stephanie was saying, this weird intermediate size range, it's hard to for us to understand how they got to be so big without getting a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. And so their whole history and formation of those planets is really tied in with understanding how our solar system as a whole formed. Mm-hmm. When you say it's going to take a while to get there, I mean, what? how, how long are we talking? Are we, it, is this years, tens it, of years? It, it, it really depends on how big a spacecraft you're sending. Uh, because the more massive it is, uh, the more energy you need to get it out there. So the New Horizons spacecraft, for example, which went to Pluto, which is further yet, got there in a hurry because they put a really tiny spacecraft on top of a really massive rocket. But in a hurry is pretty relative. Right. Nine years? Yes, but 
for comparison, it took Cassini almost seven years to get to Saturn. Right. And that's because it was a much larger spacecraft. And so you were carrying a lot more instruments there and a lot more fuel, which you needed if you want to stop when uh-huh. you get there. New Horizons went zipping by Pluto just the way Voyager 2 went zipping by Uranus and Neptune. So if you want to stop when you get there, you got to take a lot of fuel. That takes more energy, which means harder to get there. And since we've already done a flyby, you'd probably want to stop while you're at one of these planets, right? Ideally, <laughs> sure. Is there an appetite for, for one of these missions? There's, there's proposals out there. Is, is there an appetite? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the um, most recent uh, decadal survey, uh, Uranus flagship, so flagship being the most expensive and fancy type of mission, um, was proposed as the third highest priority mission after a Europa a mission and a Mars sample return mission. And given that those missions are already pretty much in the works, um, the next logical step would be to have a very fancy and expensive mission to one of the ice giant planets. Well, Stephanie Jarmick, as, as, as someone who studies this, what would be your ideal mission uh, to to one of these planets? Right. That's a great question. Because um, ideally, right, we'd want to put all of the bells and whistles um, on one of these missions. And so that's sort of the, the constraints that we're up against is we don't have the money for that. Um, but if we did have sort of infinite money for one of these missions, um, you'd really want a joint um, two spacecraft, so one to visit Uranus and one to visit Neptune, because though they're both ice giant planets, they're uh, distinct from each other. We can learn a lot about our solar system's formation and evolution by comparative planetology and seeing how in what ways they're the same and different. Um, so we'd want to have a dedicated orbiter, so we need to be able to get that spacecraft into orbit around both of these planets. Mm-hmm. Um, the SLS launch vehicle, if we could have that, that could get to Uranus in about six years. Okay. So well, that'd be pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you're kind of looking at more like 12, 13 years mm-hmm. um, to get to both Uranus and Neptune. Um, and we'd also like to have a, an atmospheric probe. Mm-hmm. We'd want to have something that could... Uh, measure the noble gas uh, ratios in the atmospheres of this planet because it's really important to constraining our formation and evolution models. Mm-hmm. Um, and gaining in the orbiter would allow us to uh, learn more about the interior structure of these planets, which we have really no idea <laughs> what's going on inside of these planets. And uh, our models aren't really helping us here without mm-hmm. data. And both of them have all sorts of like interesting moons orbiting them and unusual ring systems as well. Neptune's largest moon is basically Pluto, like it's got a moon, Triton, Mm -hmm. that looks very much in size and origin like the planet Pluto that's orbiting Neptune. So you get all sorts of bonuses if you go there, all sorts of interesting things to look at. So how much much money do you need? (laughs) Payday is Friday. I might be able to help out. Um, I would say at least $2 billion. $2 billion. All for right. one spacecraft. It's going to take more than one paycheck for a joint one, one might be for like $3 billion. Yeah. $3 billion. Uh, quickly to wrap it up, is that are, are we optimistic that that will happen in the next decade or so? Yeah, I think yeah. so, in the next decade. Yeah. Um, at least that the mission will be maybe selected and planned. It probably wouldn't launch in the next decade. There are interesting like launch windows that you mm-hmm. can optimize to get there in six years, right. for instance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then there's also... Um, a lot of like programmatic things about how how these as Stephanie mentioned how these missions get selected sort of in order of mm-hmm. preference. But there's a lot of really cool um, proposals out there, and there's a lot of people really pushing for this right now. And a lot of that is because we're tying into all these exoplanet discoveries, mm-hmm. um, but also because they're just so quirky and interesting. <laughs> yeah. That was Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. 
We also heard from Stephanie Jarmack. She's a graduate student studying these planets. If you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast. You can do that on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.